0: Good evening and welcome to the special recording of Glam City, Sydney's only radio show dedicated to all things glam. My name is Anna Clark. I'm a historian at the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS and host of Glam City radio show podcast on 2SER 107.3. We're now into our second season of Glam City, which is very exciting, and we've had some really fantastic guests on the show. You can hit it up on the website on the Twitter, on the Facebook. Uh, We've spoken with the ever-generous Uncle Bruce Pascoe, uh, Australian Maritime Museum's Michael Harvey, and City of Sydney's own Jess Scully, just to name a few. First, I'd like to thank Lisa Murray and the City of Sydney History Unit for hosting this event tonight. Thank you for the warm welcome and the acknowledgement of country. We are, as you know, all gathered tonight on a place, Gadigal Land, where histories have been made and curated for thousands of generations. To our guests, we are delighted to have our three fantastic guests from the glam sector here tonight. Uh, Jenny Newell, here on the left, has been exploring Pacific history and culture for over 20 years and is currently the manager of Pacific and International Collections at the Australian Museum, but we need to
1: update that as today. That's right, exactly. I've got a new role, so I'm now manager of
0: climate change projects at the Australian Museum we'll be talking about this, no doubt. (laughs) Kirsten Thorpe is a Warramaya woman and professional archivist. It nearly says activist when you write archivist, so talk about those fusions. Uh, Who's led the development of protocols, policies and services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in libraries and archives in Australia. Kirsten is currently a cultural and critical archivist at Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research at UTS, as well as a PhD candidate at Monash University. And last but not least, Shona White is Director of the Penrith Regional Gallery where she explores and develops visual arts advocacy through community, education and public engagement to build an exchange of ideas between institutions and communities. So thank you. Can we all give them a warm (laughs) welcome tonight? you who made it to the Glam Slam conference earlier this year, um, there was a a sort of extraordinary uh, keynote by David Ritter, the chair of Greenpeace, and tonight's show was really prompted by David's call to arms during that keynote address from Glam Slam conference earlier this year, he said that glam, institu- glam institutions should be activist spaces and that there was an ethical obligation for glamours not simply to discuss or present issues but to have a stake in them and today's panel discussion is going to be talking around that question. So I want to start with that old adage I guess that museums are safe spaces for dangerous ideas. How does this play out? in your own approach to the glam sector and perhaps some of the institutions that you have worked for and with?
1: Um, I guess one of the great things about museums is that people come into them expecting to slow down and to reflect and think and to be receptive to new ideas. And I think museums and and galleries, I don't know about archives, but probably it's, it's a similar kind of thing that people come in with an expectation that they're going to be able to access new ideas and that particularly in spaces like museums and galleries where there's conversations often are being set up through the programs and education um, programs, that there's, there's capacities there for you to engage with other people around some of the issues that, that the institution is, is really wanting to um, put out there. And museums and galleries today is so much more engaged in their societies than they ever used to be i feel that they're much more um willing to to really grapple with the the crucial issues that that we really have a responsibility to grapple with and so i guess it's one of those things where people can expect to come into a space like a a museum or gallery and really be open to new things and be in a, a more receptive frame of mind and are therefore going to be hearing other points of view in that more receptive mode rather than, you know, feeling um, on the defensive or um, feeling that they're, they're not going to be listened to. So I, I think that's a, it's a much more discursive space than perhaps you know the old museum or gallery used to be. Um, museums today are, are much more um, are safe places for, for the sorts of ideas that people do need to start to, to find a way to, to grapple with. So I
2: don't know. Um, It's true. Uh, the, I think enabling that space where people feel uh, competent enough to, to have an exchange of ideas or to think about things more broadly, I think that phrase, it was kind of really Big in maybe the 90s up or something 80s but it's it was something that I remember used to get sort of said when people were getting particularly upset about something that they found too mm-hmm. provocative and so you would find that the museum would come back with oh well you know, it's a safe place for dangerous ideas it's very safe here it's okay you can feel competent in this space to engage something which you might find confronting mm-hmm. which is speaking to the, the, the wonderful description that you just gave about that engaged space mm-hmm. but it's also like if you actually sort of think about it it's actually it sort of used to baffle me a bit too, still does. Dangerous ideas. It's like, well, it's a very value-laden statement. So, what is a va- what's a dangerous I- idea? Mm. To me, a dangerous idea might be white supremacism. Mm. I-, I don't really know that we want a safe space for that because it's sort of. I think you've really got to think about the values of what's inherent in that and. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we do show might be an Aboriginal art exhibition. Is that a dangerous idea, really? Although, um, you know, the sorts of work that you were talking about, that either you've got climate change in your new role or your Pacific cultures in... It's not really what you'd call a dangerous idea. So it depends on what dangerous means. And certainly some, some places have taken this on as um, not so much the glam sector, have taken on dangerous ideas as a big um, thing, as you, as you might know, the, the Opera House for one. And, uh, and they, they ran it for a while. And it was pretty, it was very game of them, but they, they've sort of changed it now. Um, because I think they found that danger aspect to be a bit inflammatory and a bit sensational, which, yeah, it, it sort of, it would be. The thing to come back to think about what the glam sector is, I mean, what connects us all, in galleries, libraries, archives, museums, is that we have collections. And that's what that's what the connector is. During that period where where we all discovered the need that we're going to have to digitise collections, that was really what brought us together. Was because to digitise collections, being able to share uh, resources of or well, how do we go about this? What do we do? It was such a big new thing, such a massive thing. That's where GLAM really came about. And so it's sort of it also means that it's talking about what your collection is and what your curatorial premise is. What your you know how do you archive? What's considered archivable? You know, is it everything or is it a certain selection of things or um, those things are, I think are really relevant to us. So, so thinking about, um, I think it's always going to be a provocative space, it's always going to be something that's a surprise, and it's good, but it also needs to occur in a, in a way that people feel competent to deal with that and that they're not going to be belittled, that they're not going to feel out of place mm-hmm. at all. So that's where I think it, it kind of plays out more so now, but uh, perhaps maybe archives might be another another way of looking at, at that, do you think?
3: Um, if I um, think about glam and even the separation of galleries, libraries, archives, and museums, I guess um, as an Aboriginal person, I'm thinking about the knowledge that is contained in them institutions. I don't necessarily think about Um, the difference between objects or the material that is there to be archived. I I, um, see the glam sector and particularly glam institutions as being a wider part of the colonial project. And a project that basically was a part of the dispossession of communities, and particularly um, in the southeast of Australia, and you know across our nation. But for us here in New South Wales, we were the first to encounter British occupation. So I see those institutions as being holders of material through theft, through trade, and really being objects that were there to position Aboriginal people as curiosities and more widely to position our community as as being homogenous, nameless Um, so I I see them as being dangerous places in every sense of the word. I think that there's been an incredible amount of work that continues to be done to change that but fundamentally they are there to serve a collecting purpose that isn't there to document um, Aboriginal people and histories.
0: Except maybe in surveillance.
3: In surveillance in objectifying um, Um, and you know in terms of that wider thirst for cultural knowledge and if we look at um, the documentation of language it was there in for the the purpose of Aboriginal people not being a living culture but a document that Australia could look back and reflect on Um, so I don't see them as um, safe spaces at all Um, my PhD research is focusing very much on the question of indigenous cultural safety Um, I think we're we're sort of at a moment that we're doing all of these programs that we have a false perception that we've actually opened the door and let Aboriginal people in but you know coming from you know my experience has been in leadership roles working in GLAM and there's still fundamental power structures in play that basically force Aboriginal practitioners in particular to be constantly working in this front line of making change that we won't we won't push those agendas any further unless we actually look at the resourcing and, and start to question what we're actually, what is the role of
0: GLAM in um, telling Aboriginal stories and histories. I was thinking about the idea of danger and safety, do you think that, that those spaces can be safe for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people?
3: Optimistically, I would say yes, but um, the more that I look at the question of cultural safety, I think we um, – which the the definition that I've been using in my doctoral research is really around um, – the the potential for people to have assault on your culture. Um, so it is kind of the threat um, of being unsafe. So for me, I think that within the structures of GLAM institutions, there isn't any potential for safety. We need to redesign new spaces that, from the bottom up, are informed by Indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing, rather than trying to... Um, yeah i guess repurpose that colonial pursuit and then saying yeah aboriginal people can come in because i think the things that have been collected you know have the potential to cause harm to people um, there was no consent in that process of collecting um, so we've got to go back retrospectively and start to question those things but we need to also plan for the future that brings a much more reinvigorated space and and presence for aboriginal people to be
0: there in terms of that potential and possibility of, of- GLAM institutions, Um, Shona and Jenny, are there examples that you can remember either in your current institutions or in previous ones where they have tackled uh, dangerous questions, if you like, or, you know, even self-critical in terms of some of the holdings that they might have and how they've dealt with that in the past?
1: Yes, constantly. (laughs) So that's certainly the ongoing Challenge and um, your project for the Australian Museum and our, our First Nations team are really, of course, in the heart of that process. But the rest of the museum is also involved in rethinking how we do things and how we think about custodianship and how we think about um, who has authority over stories and and collections and the way things are shown. And it does often feel dangerous, I must say. Certainly, having worked with cultural collections for a long time, it has always felt dangerous and, and um, yeah full of um, potential for for harm um, as, as a, a non first Nations person working with those collections it's often been quite difficult and the reasons why I'm no longer working in, in that area but um, it's been important to be able to communicate to audiences that kind of unease and, and the, the trickiness of the collections and and the, the power within those those cultural objects and um, and and the ways that that a museum is able to,
0: to negotiate and navigate those those really potent um, has, objects. Has, sorry to interrupt, is, has there been audience receptiveness to those kind of meta questions yes, of um, the space itself? Yes,
1: I think so. I mean, it's hard sometimes to, to know how much messages are, are being received, but probably that's something that the, the museum needs to be doing more effectively. I think one of the really interesting examples of this <coughs> danger that the museum has navigated quite well or is in the process of navigating at the moment is the um the 2020 moment that's happening Yes, so next year around the 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 time when captain cook and and the rest of the endeavor uh, all arrived in australia and so this is being marked by you know the glam sector um in a big way the australian museum was gearing up to to do some sort of big exhibition that was going to be about Pacific stories and um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander stories and it was going to be a very very much a you know all, all museum curators um, who were working in cultural collections were going to work on that and It became more and more fraught, actually. We could see that this was maybe going to be sort of a powder keg and that we weren't really sure how to approach it effectively in ways that were going to be comfortable for the First Nations audiences who'd who'd come to the museum. And we kept hearing from people that they actually didn't want to have to talk about Captain Cook at all. And Captain Cook triggers all sorts of um, things for people, of course, which are all to do with trauma. And um, we wanted to make sure we weren't traumatising people coming to the museum or that we were perpetuating any of these you know these um, problematic histories in in the ways that the museum was was you know reassessing these histories and so in fact we just called a halt to that exhibition and handed the project over to the First Nations team with the new lead curator Laura McBride and she has led this amazing consultation process. They've had 850, no, no, over, over 800 um, responses in questionnaires and online surveys and so on from First Nations people around Australia, particularly um, on this coast, on the East Coast. And from that, they're developing some sort of, I think an exhibition, I'm not sure, but you know, it's going to become something amazing, which will open when the museum reopens in, in August next year. And um, it's going to be stunning. It's going to be completely curated, created by First Nations people. And so the rest of the museum is you know, just standing back and, and um, waiting to see what's going to be. And, and I, it's, it's reasonably likely, I'd say. I mean, this is just my, my sense is Quite possibly, Cook won't actually get mentioned. It's it's going to be something probably quite
0: quite different. Shona, do you have experiences in this, or either successful or not so successful examples of trying to do something
2: that pushes the boundaries? Oh yes, of, of course. Um, I think that these these um, issues of cultural safety, especially for. Uh, indigenous cultures in Australia is enormously difficult and I don't really think that um, libraries and galleries or any of our cultural institutions are really um, that well um, well along the way to to addressing them satisfactorily I think absolutely you, you've struck that point quite well and the other thing that is the kind of elephant in the room, the thing about Cook is is that, I hate to say it, but it's funding I mean there was an awful there was an enormous amount of money that was provided for doing things on Cook, so you'll find that all of these institutions all around Australia are putting in um, projects to, to do with Cook, and and even if you look at um, at, at what um, the Prime Minister of Australia in his electorate, he, he's funding you know, a statue of Cook. So, in a sense, there's a, there is a sort of a, there's a, an overarching political um, thing with that, which is about which is also you know which is about funding, and of course all of the institutions um, are desperate for for resources. Uh, and so that's you know that's an aspect of it, which you know sure there's a historical moment in time, but um, you know it's come up that the endeavor and the endeavour was it was particularly interesting in terms of European um, scientific history, extremely interesting, but it gets read very differently here um, the the cook and um, the whole cook endeavor journey but uh, but yeah it's and the same thing with when with there was all of these uh, exhibitions about Anzacs too well, there was an awful lot of funding about for anzacs so so you, there's these others, this other level, which isn't just people making d- decisions you know, at our level. It's happening you know, on levels far beyond what we have control over.
0: I guess you could look at uh, funding as a form of activism as well, couldn't you? That it's a particular... Or,
2: there's nothing that you can do. Not necessarily
0: with, progressive or whatever. You yeah, don't doesn't have to have a political labour on everything it.
2: Everything you can do in, in, in a gallery or museum or in a cultural centre, I mean, it does have... There's a political overlay. There. Even, even doing something that you think is benign, there, there is a political overlay to it. So acknowledging it is always a very healthy thing, if, you can, if, that, if that's possible.
0: It reminds me of, I was just talking with Kirsten beforehand about this, uh, the MUCH index at the State Library of New South Wales, and apparently when um, MUCH, was it Charles MUCH? Uh, developed this archive, uh, this, sorry, this index of uh, colonial people and characters uh, in the early 20th century when it was released lots of people with convict ancestors went in and took their own card indexes, indices, uh, out, or could, took their cards out of the index so that they would never be linked back to their convict ancestors as a form of, well, that's a pretty direct form of activism in your work at the State Library, Kirsten, when you were there. Did you ever see that kind of um, I suppose in a way it's a democratisation of the archive in its purest sense um, Yeah, whether whether or not we looked at it as a form of activism. But did, How did the State Library uh, deal with some of those controversial silences?
3: I've probably experienced it more um, in my previous role at the State Archives where Working with the records of the former Protection and Warfare Board, um, people who had been under the jurisdiction of both of the boards um, obviously would encounter those records and see them as being... totally documents of surveillance and they didn't represent people's lived experience in any way, shape or form. So it was a a fairly typical reaction of people to um, both be confused, um, angry, sort of perplexed at the fact that someone had been sitting up and writing documents about them. So, in the examples of um, Coonamundra Girls' Home, Kinchela Boys' Home, where children were taken, uh, I think a lot of people looked at those records of being um, total fiction, although there were little segments that people could pull out. And I probably had the most robust conversations about record-keeping and, you know, the, the questions of truth-telling, um, sitting one-on-one with members of the Stolen Generation as they sat with their records Uh, and there had been cases where people particularly where the New South Wales government um, historically there was a process that people could apply to be exempt from the New South Wales Protection Act so uh, a lot of people that were returned servicemen had to come back to Australia and they weren't recognized for their service because they were under the board so they couldn't apply for things like pensions. So people would apply to the board to be exempt, which then gave people uh, a document that looked very much like a contemporary passport that people had to carry around to go on and off reserves. And it was always interesting with the exemption certificates because people saw them as being documents that belonged to their family or to a particular person, and they were things that people wanted back. And similarly with things like school reports, um, photographs that you would think were, were quite personal in nature. Um, to me they were the the most um, the loudest calls for return of material. I think the State Library has uh, another kind of face to itself in terms of uh, the collections because they were not, um, government documents, they weren't collected in the same kind of way, so they were often through purchase and um, whether it was an auction house. So to me the state Library's collections were curated in a very different way, which often meant that some of the histories were left out. And examples of that are around um, the latest Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, that when they were inspecting institutions that were known to um, have cases of um, abuse that the records didn't exist in the church files that were at the state library so I think they all have different tensions and and different kind of moments but the the state archives had a lot of potency because it was very personal in nature I think we see now in cases of language revitalization that people um, see language as belonging more broadly to communities so there are requests for the return but that's often the knowledge again rather than the object
0: itself. It's very interesting to think about who owns these records um, and and the kind of publicness of people's personal material I think there's big debates in Canada at the moment about whether certain documents about uh, First Nations uh, should be shredded because people are wanting public records to, to, to sort of because they're not true or true to them so I think it raises really important questions about what is the role of uh, the gland sector in housing or being a repository and archiving and also representing the public back to itself and who are the authors and who are the audiences of these records.
3: And it goes back to that insidious nature of what has been collected. I think that, you know, if you um, perhaps have come from a a family of landholders and you have nostalgia around, you know, the station records that were held or, you know, if you've got a family member that was a gardener and, you know, they'd kept all this botanical knowledge, then sure, you might see that in a very different light. But um, looking at the documentation of um, Aboriginal people, particularly in New South Wales, the records aren't... um, they are they aren't always um, wonderful to engage with. And they're also really quite incomplete. So people are going in looking for a document that might give a sense of history, but they're not actually finding it when they get there. So I think that kind of that other side of the right of reply and, and filling that void and the silences is something that we need to
0: address. What do you think um, to the whole panel here this debate about activism really comes down to what we see the role of public cultural institutions, which you've been talking about a little bit, Kirsten. Um, what is the role of public, the glam sector? What What are we doing?
2: I've got have got the new definition yeah. from ICOM if you want it. I <laughs> can read it out. It's uh, it's still it's still in its draft form. This is what's been put out. They're wanting people to um, to make suggestions. It says. Museums are democratising inclusive and polyphonic spaces for critical dialogue about the pasts and the futures, acknowledging and addressing the conflicts and challenges of the present. They hold artefacts and specimens in trust for society, safeguard diverse memories for future generations and guarantee equal rights and equal access to heritage for all people. Museums are not-for-profit, they are participatory and transparent and work in active partnership with and for diverse communities to collect, preserve, research, interpret, exhibit and enhance understandings of the world, aiming to contribute to human dignity and social justice, global equality and planetary well-being. As you can see by that statement and what Kirsten's told us, it's, it's, that there's all manner of fraught things still embedded in, in, what, it, in what it actually is in what they're saying, a, a museum, a museum is. Yeah.
0: Is is the debate being had about what glam is and does in terms of its, is, is it's you know, they mentioned it's speaking to futures but also to past. Uh,
2: what are the this, sort of public about This debates one's museums. That? I don't know that it's glam. This is okay. museums. So I don't know that the glam, as I said, the glam sector came together for some very pro- pragmatic reasons. So I don't know that it's got that, such a big ideational structure to, to work, to play mm. with, really, in that sense. Although I think it's it, this—it's certainly very interesting to think about. Well, what is a collecting in this institution these mm. days, and what does having a collection mean? And when, how can it stop? Like, when, when is it full? Like, how do we manage to store these things? Because, of course, the cost of managing a collection is enormous, and, and preserving it and doing all those things, and then it's also fraught with a whole range of issues. Whereas an art centre or a music centre. Mm. They don't have a collections they can be they can be a lot lighter they just put they present that is they're presenting temporary exhibitions temporary theater programs whatever it is they don't have to have this uh, the weight of a collection and what that might mean and acquisitions policy and uh, conservation policies and
0: i guess there's a whole question also about who the stakeholders are in terms of how activist or what sort of activism an institution can do if it's government audiences fun you know philanthropists and so on.
2: I, I think galleries, libraries, museums, archives might like to see themselves as being active these days. You know, like being very proactive in their active in, way. Yeah, in their active <laughs> way and the like, no. Absolutely. <laughs> but um, but being activists, uh, you know, may well get them outside of their, you know, outside of their KPIs with the with, uh, you know, like they're not activists. They're not they're not greenpeace. They are something else. You know, like they're a different sort of institution. Sure, but it's crucial that we're engaged. But certainly, our society, I think there's a, there's a general and desire, and although yes. we're speaking for a very broad sector here, yes. to be to be active, to be very actively engaged, and to have that very productive kind of engagement with communities, rather than some idea that it's a very passive space or it's it's a space where you just tell people what to think, because mm. that's that's not really seen as being as, as fulfilling the mission.
0: Jenny, in your new role in the, as climate change. What, curator of climate change? Manager? Manager of climate change. We don't have (laughs)
1: curators. (laughs) It's managing (laughs) climate change. Managing (laughs) climate change. Yeah, I'm just managing
0: climate change. (laughs) Speaking from personal experience, (laughs) where do you see your role in the museum and what the museum can do to tell us about this moment in the Anthropocene, um, in Sydney, on Gadigal land, uh, facing this kind of possible calamity... Yes. What, what does? How does the museum? What's its place and space in that present moment?
1: Yes, it's a really crucial place and space for the museum to be occupying. So we have a responsibility, as I think all museums, galleries, libraries, and archives do have, to to not just be holding these things of 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 nature, of human culture, not just be holding them. Know, for some esoteric reason, you know, for the future to, to, to contemplate or for us to contemplate now, but to really be seeing these things as our our license to be able to speak to them, to be able to speak about them, to be able to help people understand the the dilemmas that are now facing these these worlds, the 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 world of people and, and nature combined and that we have a responsibility because we're funded by the people to not just sit on these things and to not just be didactic about them not just tell people this is what you need to think about them but really help people understand the condition we are all now in and our responsibility that we all have to to step up and and have a role in helping to care for them more effectively and so the museum can do that um, quite effectively in helping people so we're not just educating we're really hoping to um, I guess the best way to think about it is helping people to engage with with the climate crisis, and so to do that, we do have to help people to understand more, but also to understand their own relationship to the climate crisis and what it is that they can do themselves in their own world. And and I think that's yeah, that's that's our urgent task here in uh, here on Gadigal land, um, and doing that with Gadigal um, people are uh, also within Sydney, it's a really important constituency for us to help people understand what's happening to, to Sydney in this in this new climate environment. And also nationally and internationally, it's really important. I think the Australian Museum can have a really strong leadership role internationally. We already are really actually to helping people to understand what it is that, that, that they can do within their own institutions. And um, yeah, we're hoping to, to launch off with that much more now.
0: It's an interesting uh, decision though, isn't it? I mean, it's a very proactive decision It's, if not activist, it at least is is active um, without the active wear perhaps, but if you think of other, what institutions are saying or are not saying, um, it's perhaps also interesting to look at what institutions aren't doing um, and if they're being sitting back and not being activist about certain issues, whether it's Indigenous voices, I, mean, I think of the, um, the Australian War Memorial for example, it's deciding not to include the frontier conflicts in the war memorial that's a decision to not be proactive and what are those what are those tipping points I mean the, the debate's being had in that instance as it is in the climate change instance but what's the, the tipping point that sends things yes. from stepping back or stepping forward
1: Indeed, I think in the Australian Museum's case, the fulcrum is is our wonderful director, Kim McKay, who is a real force for good. And she's very much... um, She often says, I don't want us to talk about this. I don't want us to talk about climate change. I want us to be active. And so she's really enabling all of this um, actual action. And I think other museums are perhaps not feeling as as confident um, or courageous, but... They may
2: not be as enabled either for various reasons. It's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Because, interestingly, the same subject can play out differently in different institutions for all manner of reasons um, that's that aren't true. necessarily apparent. That's right and I think um, without perhaps really strong
1: leadership that's going to be saying to funders um, and and um, government that actually we're going to do this, this is our, within our remit, we are a you know, whatever institution. It is, yeah, you know, in our case it's a natural history and culture museum. This is definitely our remit and we're going to be talking about the the facts of the matter. We're going to be conveying the science, we're going to be conveying what's happening. And that's within our remit and we're comfortable with that. I think a lot of museums are nervous about being seen to be stepping over the mark into something which is political, but actually this is not about politics, this is about the actuality of what's happening in the world. And so it's not an issue about us, you know, being neutral or, or um or, or taking a political position. This is
0: this is just this is just the facts, man. Yeah, this is the reality in the age of the Anthropocene. It's arguable, also, I guess, that the frontier wars were a, a fact. It's mm-hmm. curious. Yeah, sort of but, the, the, I mean, silences are an interesting.
2: There was space there, when I was working in institutions in Canberra, and there was a, a time there where there was a kind of a It was almost like um, um, pass the parcel no, 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 the War Memorial can't deal with this because, oh, we're too busy, we've got too much stuff on, or something, so, oh, this institution can do it, or that institution can do it. So it was almost like being passed around in a strange way, which was the way of acknowledging that it existed, but, oh, maybe it's better that, you know, an art gallery do that, or maybe it's better that someone else does that, which is um, odd, mm. a strange... It's an interesting phenomenon, it's, that's what happens, but taking on different, different kinds of... Um, Taking on different issues in different institutions, some institutions, art galleries sometimes, can have, uh, some, can do some really quite uh, strong material, interestingly, that a museum wouldn't, wouldn't touch, and then sometimes it, it works in different, in different ways.
0: That's a very interesting note, actually, that some institutions can take a step up. Like if you think of Mukuru or, you know, what it can do that another institution can't just by virtue of what it is. For example, that's a Narcos project that you're working on, Kirsten.
3: Yeah, and I guess um, Mukatu is a a project that's coming out of Washington State University that is looking at this question of how you enable Indigenous voice through rights management, through the protection of cultural heritage, through technology. But I think at the core of that, it's about reconnecting with communities and building relationships to discuss the really sticky matters, to go back and expand or enhance um, the records that exist, to ask questions about the custodianship do things actually need to be in a museum um could the museum perhaps hold a digital copy of the material and the object be returned but we're excited at uts about the the platform itself because of the conversation that it enables so you know one of my kind of reflections now having left the glam sector and working in an institutional context and being um within universities is that it's so hard when you're within to see the cyclical kind of um You know, I I saw myself definitely going around and around in circles and um, we were always trying to manage complex problems with solutions that would never meet the needs of that um, actually being reframed or any transformation happening. So Muktu is an exciting opportunity to actually go back to communities and ask them what they want because it's very easy to be in Sydney, to be in Canberra or in any national... um, institution or state institution and start to perceive what community wants and I think that's a great credit to the team at the Australian Museum with cook 2020 that they've actually done that um, that Laura and the team have taken that leadership to go and ask people simply what would you like of cook and I think um, it's such a simple process to go through but one that we don't look to we try and create and I was involved at the State Library in the first discussions about cook and one of the things that I would often say is I don't think much about about Cook I actually think about the fact that you know, if we look at the map and diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia, we are still here and we still exist, so Cook isn't the priority for me it might be for some communities, but we actually need to go out and ask those really simple questions but instead what I would see is this um, duplication of effort a total waste of resources going into agendas around anniversaries and being driven by um, you know, much wider political questions Questions. So yeah, asking some simple questions I think is part of the core of what Mukatu is about. Um, and, and interestingly for us, it's not about you know the the scale of the projects. For us, if we do things well, and there's ten items that community feel really good about connecting with, that's success for us. So I think those measures around engagement and what we deem success to look look
0: like is something that we need to reevaluate. Maybe um, that. The reframing that um, sort of participation and impact is one of the most activist things that glam institutions can do. In fact, and sort of take it off, take it back into communities. That brings us to the close for this uh, episode of Glam City. Thank you so much. Um, can we please thank our three amazing panelists?
3: Thank you
0: very much. Um, Jenny Ewell, Kirsten Thorpe, and Shona White, as well as our fantastic venue hosts, City of Sydney, in particular Lisa Murray. (laughs) This event was uh, hosted by the Australian Centre for Public History, UTS, and 2SER 107.7, and City of Sydney. So, thank you so much for coming along.